trying to be diligent over the last couple of years and record these messages and put them out online. And it seems like there seem, there's a following of people that actually listen to these podcasts. If you're bored and you miss a chapel, you're welcome to download it on iTunes or, or on SoundCloud. But uh, my name's Chuck Leemaster with Team Faith. It looks like uh, we're all familiar with this race series and back for another round of it. And welcome to, uh, welcome to Florida. I promise it'll warm up today. I read the weather forecast. I prayed about it. It's going to warm up today. It's already warmer than it was last night when we were trying to uh, do some nine square out here with the kids. And I think today's going to be a good day. We're back in the sand, not in the mud like uh, like Florida was last year. So it's going to be a good day. Lord, thanks a lot for this morning. Thanks for bringing us here to another year of racing. Uh, you've put this in our heart, and we love to do it. But first of all, we want to give you the first part of our time today. Would you just open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us? Give me the words to say, and uh, may you be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you guys. Actually, I do know about you guys. You're probably a lot like me. Uh, school was not my favorite thing to do. As a matter of fact, I, 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 I kind of hated school. I didn't like going to school. And um, a lot of times I was bored in school because, you know, putting your, putting your brain to work is just taxing, but occasionally it was interesting. History was sometimes interesting. Science, when we got to dissect the frog, that was really cool. Um, math just hurt my head no matter what I did. I couldn't do the math. And then there was English. And English, who fell asleep in English class? I fell asleep in English. My teacher, I didn't know this. We had a really cool teacher, uh, English teacher. And um, she got along well with the kids that she liked. And if she didn't like you, you could easily be sent to the principal's office. But she had a lot of grace and compassion for her students that she liked. And I think I was one of those that she liked. And I didn't know it, but she took a picture of me. And when I graduated, she, she put this picture up for everybody to see. And it was me asleep in her class. <laughs> Tongue hanging out and everything. I fell asleep in English class. It was just, I mean, prepositional phrases and sentence fragments. I mean, your eyes are glossing over right now. But I do remember parentheses. You guys know parentheses, right? Because you use them all the time when you're texting people. You make the smiley face out of a parentheses. Parentheses, when you put a sentence in parentheses, it means that this has to do with what I'm talking about, but it's not mainly important. All right. So for example, since 2012, Team Faith has been riding KTM dirt bikes. In parentheses, KTM dirt bikes are orange. All right. It it has something to do with it. It's not crucial to what you're talking about. There's a sentence in parentheses that I want to talk about today. This is found in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And now when this was originally written in the Greek language, they didn't have parentheses. So when this gets translated, the translators of some uh, translations, they say, okay, this has to do with the subject, but it's not crucial to it. And here's the sentence. It says, it was in Antioch, the believers were first called Christians. It was in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Now, what does a Christian mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? Because this is the first reference ever to the term Christian. But today, in 2015 here in America, when you say Christian, or you hear the term Christian, there's a lot of different things that come to mind. I mean, when somebody says that they're a Christian, for, for example, when I heard the term Christian as a kid, I thought, that's just what those weird people are. I was a Christian, and I was going to a Christian school, part of a Christian family, Christian school. We had the Christian uniform. We had the Christian Pledge of Allegiance. We had all this Christian stuff. And we were weird. And I knew we were weird. We wore different clothes. We cut our hair differently. The school that I was going to had all these crazy rules. One of the rules was that in, in no circumstance ever in her life will a girl ever wear pants. All right, That was one of those rules. I remember we went on a field trip one time. 
where we went to this uh, we went to this outdoor camp that had a big pond and had a big swimming hole and uh, where the kids could go swimming and they separated us into two groups the boys and the girls and so when the when the girls were swimming the boys were on the other side of the camp way out of sight and even though the boys were way out of sight the girls had to wear instead of swimsuits they had to wear culottes if you know what culottes are they're these big long baggy shorts that kind of look like they're wearing a skirt by the grace of God nobody drowned that day but I don't know how Christians those weird people that have lots of weird rules their own Christian language Christianese those those weird people that go to those weird places that's one thing that we think of when we hear the term Christian in America in 2015 another thing that you might think of depending on what your what your life view is when you hear the term Christian if your life view is that you have a lot of compassion for the poor and that you're very concerned with equal rights for men and for women and for people of different color of skin, and that you're very concerned that the poor be elevated out of their poverty, and you recognize that the government is the biggest vehicle that could do something about that, the government has the most money available, the government can enforce social change against people's will, the government can do good things. If that's your life view, and you hear the term Christian, you probably hear those are the people that hate the poor. Those are the people that want to keep women uh, from having equal rights. Those are the people, and we call them, yes, I'm talking about liberals versus conservatives. When a liberal hears the term Christian, they think, oh, there's that person that says, go get a job, hippie. Or there's that person that doesn't think that uh, women should have equal pay. Or there's all these different, and it might not be the right view of what a Christian is, but that's what you hear if that's what your life view is. When you hear Christian, you hear, oh, there's that hater. Or if we've ever been in church, I'm sure that all of us have an experience, an example that we could probably think of immediately of Christian. Oh, that's that judgmental hypocrite. There's that person that always likes to point fingers. There's that little old lady that's always talking about other people, always has something to say about everybody. So judgmental, so critical, and so hypocritic too. I mean, there's such a, a hypocrite. I, I know this, Christian, this guy that claims to be a Christian, and he was caught evading his taxes. I know this guy that claims to be a Christian. He did this, this, that, and the other. We can probably all think of those stories. Or maybe, depending on your life view, maybe depending on where you come from, you hear the term Christian, and you think, oh, there's that superstitious person that doesn't believe in science. There was a debate last year between uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, and uh, Ken Ham, the guy that founded the Creation Museum just outside of Cincinnati. They had this big two-hour-long debate about uh, creation versus evolution. And Bill Nye, the science guy, was full of scientific fact. And Ken Ham kept saying, the Bible this, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Now, I am a Christian, and I do believe the Bible is the Word of God. But to use it to argue that, uh, it, by, by the end of it, the conclusion was that Christians believe only in this superstitious book from thousands of years ago, and they don't believe in any science. And that seems to be the view of Christians that a lot of people have is that they're not scientific, they prefer to believe in superstition, and in this old book that really isn't relevant for today. And I would argue with that, but I'm just saying that's the perception of what a Christian is. So what is a Christian? Acts 11, 29, they were first called Christians in Antioch. Anytime you open the Bible, it's very important to put everything in context. So when we're talking about Antioch, and we're talking about this term Christian, it starts out, uh, the, 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 the author of Acts starts out in verse 19, starts talking about Antioch. He says, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Scattered because of persecution, because of Stephen. 
and they went as far as Antioch. Antioch is 300 miles away, due north of Jerusalem, 300 miles. No planes, trains, automobiles. They had to walk it, donkey, camel, you know, their own two feet. 300 miles away because of persecution relating to Stephen. What's that all about? Well, to put this in context, the book of Acts. You've got to look at the whole book of Acts. Acts was written by a doctor, a physician named Luke. Luke was very, very clinical in his writings. He wrote two books of the New Testament, the Gospel according to Luke, and the book of Acts. Acts of the disciples, Acts of the early believers, Acts of the Holy Spirit. Just Acts is what he calls it. He's very clinical in his approach, and he says, here's what happened, and he just lays out, here's what happened. He doesn't give any commentary, doesn't give any opinion, doesn't give any side notes, just here's what happened. If you want to read a fascinating book, read the book of Acts. Matter of fact, I have here a stack, a stack of Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love to give you one today. If you have a Bible that has weird language that you don't understand, this has modern translation, uh, no these or thous, things that you can easily understand. The book of Acts is one of the most fascinating reads throughout the entire Bible. And it starts out with Jesus. Luke introduces us that Jesus, he's already talked about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and now we move right into the book of Acts, and Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection, and the disciples are like, all right, so now that you've like risen from the dead, that's a big thing, now that you've risen from the dead, are you going to take and rule over Israel? And Jesus says, it's not, for, it's not for you to know the times that the Father has appointed, but you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then Jesus ascends into a cloud, just rises up, lifts up off the ground and goes up into a cloud and the disciples are standing there like, wow, dude. And two men in white are like, men of Galilee. Why do you stand staring into the sky? This same Jesus who rose up out of the, into the clouds will appear again the same way that he was gone. But for now, you have a job to do. And the very next thing is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down on these early disciples, these early believers in Jesus, that Jesus was the Son of God. And so the, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes on them, the, these early disciples, they go out into the marketplace and they start telling people about Jesus, but they don't tell them in one language, they tell them in a whole bunch of different languages. Like people from all over the world are able to understand this message about Jesus. And they're like, how is this happening? How did these ignorant people from Galilee, how do they know my language? And Peter stands up. And Peter, if you've read the Gospels, you know he has the foot-in-the-mouth disease. He's always saying something stupid. But Peter, of all people, stands up and preaches the most powerful message that has ever been preached in the history of the world. 3,000 people hear about Jesus that Jesus is the way. When Jesus was on this earth, he said, I am the way, I am the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so Peter stands up and preaches that we can have access to God the Father through Jesus. And 3,000 people say, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And 3,000 people were added that day to the movement. At this point, remember, we're not till Acts chapter 11 yet. There's no term called Christian these people are just the followers of the way. No Christians, just a movement. A movement of what? The way. Why is that significant? That's significant. That's very significant because at this time, Israel is governed by her religious leaders. Israel is a very religious country. Understand that Israel is ruled by the Roman government. Rome rules most of the known world at this time 2,000 years ago. 
All right, Israel's history is that God wanted to reveal himself to mankind. And so he comes to a guy named Abraham 2,000 years before all this happened. He comes to Abraham says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to reveal to the world who I am and what I want to accomplish. I'm going to use you to do it. So Abraham has a son. That son has a son named Jacob. God changes his name to Israel. Israel has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. They go into their promised land. Everything's going according to plan. And God says, if you guys will honor me, if you guys will obey me, I will bless you and prosper you in this land. If you do not obey me and you forget who I am, you'll go into captivity. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to remind them that he is God and that you're going to go into captivity if you don't put him first as God. Well, sure enough, the people, they forget God. They go into captivity. They get carried off. They get carted off to Babylon. After 70 years of captivity, they get freed to come back into their own land but they never have autonomous rule. They never get to rule themselves. They're ruled by the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And at the time of the Romans, when the Romans are ruling over Israel, the Romans say, you know what, guys? You can govern yourself as long as you can govern yourselves without causing any trouble to us. You pay your taxes and you don't raise an army. You can govern yourself. And so the way that Israel does this is through her religious system. They go back to that Old Testament passage where God gives the Ten Commandments and gives Moses all those other little rules and laws and, and moral codes that they need to live by. And so uh, the religious leaders are more like political leaders during the time of Israel. And it's not just don't tick off Rome. It's like here, here is how you're going to live your life. We are going to spell it out for you, everything that you need to do. First of all, the reason that we went into captivity is because we forgot God. So we're not going to forget God again. We're going we're gonna to do all 613 of those laws. Plus, we're going to insulate those laws with all these other laws. And so the religious leaders had a lot of control over the people at the time. And the people, not only were they oppressed with heavy taxes to Rome, but they had the temple tax. They had all these other little rules, all these laws. And the only way that they could access God, the only way that they could ever come before God, was to go through the religious leaders, which were more political appointees, if you will. And so during the time of Jesus, that's why it's so important that everybody keeps coming up to him and says, hey, are you going to free us from the oppression of the Romans? Are you here to free us from the oppression that's all around us? All these taxes we have to pay? It was a big deal in Jesus' time. And Jesus comes and says, no, I'm here for the kingdom of God. I'm here to establish the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Nobody understands it until the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes on them and they say, Ah, the kingdom of God has already come to earth. Jesus, this Jesus, we now have access to God through Jesus. He's the way. That's why the movement's called The Way. We don't have to go through this corrupt politician religious guy. We don't have to worry about who's ruling us, whether it's Rome or whether it's our religious leaders. We have direct access to God. That was a big threat to the religious leaders. They're like, wait a second, wait a second. You need us. You guys need us. You got to pay your temple taxes. You need to, uh, you need to kiss the ring. You need to do all these things. And they start to lose their power. And they're like, wait a second, we got to crush this movement. We thought we crushed it with Jesus because it seemed like he was starting to lead an uprising. So we killed him. But now since we killed him, seems like this movement in his name seems to be gathering momentum and seems to be growing. And so they arrest, they start arresting these followers of the way. The first thing we read about is Peter and John. They get arrested. And, uh, and, and unfortunately for them, they give Peter the platform. What, is, what are you doing over here? Peter preaches Jesus to them. And then we go on and we end up in Acts chapter 6. And in Acts chapter 6, 
it comes out that uh, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. And so now you see that some of the religious leaders are even starting to convert to this movement called the Way. And so then on, uh, on as we read, and Stephen, this is our first mention of Stephen as we read through the book of Acts, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. We don't know what he was doing. Just great, he's got the authority of God behind him because whatever it is that he's doing, healing the sick, turning sticks into snakes, I don't know what he was doing, but he had the authority of God because he was doing things that only God could do through him. And so Stephen is, uh, is, is doing all these things. And some of those who belong to the synagogue could not, uh, could not stand him. They, uh, they started to argue with, dispute with Stephen. They could not withstand the wisdom of the spirit with which he was seeking. And so they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses. And they raised up false witnesses and they brought him before the high priest. Now at this time, the high priest is like the highest ruler in the land. Like this is the guy. The next step is to go to Rome. And of course you can't go to Rome and say, hey, I hate to tell you this, but I can't solve all my problems. I need you guys to step in. So no, the high priest, this is where the buck stops right here. We're going to solve the problem. We're taking you to the high priest. Stephen, you're talking all these words about Moses and God and Abraham, and uh, we can't find any fault with you, so we are going to raise up some false witnesses. Now that is the epitome of irony. Because here's the deal. You remember the, the Old Testament when God gives Moses the, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments? Have no other gods before me. Don't set up any graven images. Uh, honor your father or mother. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. One of the big ten. And so here's the religious leader saying, hey, we want to protect that law that says don't bear false witness. And so we're going to bear false witness against this guy. And they bring him to the high priest. They tell lies about him. Says, hey, he's saying bad things about Moses. The high priest says, is that right, Stephen? What are you saying about Moses? And Stephen takes them on a history lesson through the, through the history of the nation of Israel. As if to say, I'm not saying anything that you guys don't already know. I'm saying exactly what you believe. Here's what, here's what happened with Abraham. Here's what happened with Abraham's children. Here's what happened in Egypt. Here's what happened with Moses. And here's what happened with the prophets. And when Stephen gets to the prophets and he starts talking about the prophets, talking about uh, you guys need to honor God, Stephen loses it. And he says, you stiff-necked people. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Stands up in front of the high priest, and as he gives his dissertation of the history of the nation of Israel, he just goes off on them. Like, you guys killed all the prophets, and now you've even killed the one that they were talking about. You stiff-necked, hard-nosed people. And as you might imagine, they lost it on him. They arrest him. They drag him out. And they drag him to the edge of town, and they start throwing rocks at him to stone him. And here's what it says. Uh, they cast him out of the city. They stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And when he said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. Stephen was the first martyr, the first person that was killed in the name of Jesus, the first person of the movement of the way. And he was killed. The story continues, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. During my growing up, I was always told that you'll never understand the persecution of the early church because we have it so good here in America. 
And while it's true that today I have not experienced the persecution of the early church, I think every single one of us are aware of the persecution. Because what happened last month over in Egypt? 21 people lost their heads because they were Christians, because they believed in this movement the way Jesus. They were dragged from uh, towns in Libya. And during December and in January, 21 men were kidnapped from their fisher. They were just common fishermen in small villages in Libya. They were, they were uh, taken captive, drug over into Egypt, and uh, then there's the video of them losing their heads. And I never watched it because I just don't need that image playing in my head, but I'm very, very aware that that's what's happening around the world today. That's the picture of what was going on here in the early church. It was the church leaders that were authorizing the, 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 the killing, the execution, and the imprisonment of the early believers of the way. The term Christian isn't even around yet. But these people that believe this are, uh, are being drugged and they're being persecuted. And that's why it's so significant when we come to our story that the believers were scattered because of persecution that arose out of Stephen. And here's Saul. And Saul says, I am very much in tune with, with the religious leader's beliefs and I believe that this is the right way to go. We need to quelch this movement called the way. And so he gets letters of authorization to go and imprison these people of the way. And on his way to, to Damascus, he's got letters to take him to Damascus and imprison the Christian or the believers, the way, the people of the movement of the way. He's going to put them in prison, drag them back to Jerusalem. And on his way over to Damascus, a bright light blinds him. And, said, and a voice calls out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, well, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. I am the one you are persecuting. And from that moment, Saul is sold out for the way. He goes on into town. He's blind for three days. He's got these scales on his eyes, and he can't see anything. And God comes to a guy named uh, uh, Ananias and says, Ananias, I want you to go over to Saul, and I want you to tell him about me. And Ananias is like, hey, God, are you aware? That's the guy that's trying to kill me? That's the guy who's trying to kill all of us? And, and God says, don't you worry about it. I will let Saul know how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias goes, lays hands on Saul, prays for him, the scales fall off of his eyes. And Saul, we're familiar with him because his Gentile name is Paul. Paul went on to write half of the New Testament that we're familiar with. But back in our story in Acts chapter 11, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Antioch. And there starts to grow a church there. And the report... This report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas, one of the early church leaders. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas gets to Antioch, and he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he is a good man full of the Holy Spirit. And a great many people were added to the Lord, and Barnabas says, I need help. And so he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's got to mean something more than just your political affiliation. It's got to mean something more than do I believe in a flood or do I believe in evolution. It's got to be more than just people that wear weird clothes. People were dying and people continue to die even in this day because they're a Christian. It has to do more with what we think being a Christian is. It has to do with everything with Jesus. Jesus, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. 
No one comes to the Father but by me. It's not through a priest. It's not through a church. It's not through some sort of ritual. It's not through some sort of money. It's not through some sort of tax. It's not through a thing that we do. It's a thing that we believe with our heart that Jesus is Lord. That's what a Christian is. They were first called believers, or they were first called Christians in Antioch. And ever since that day, this movement of the way has been growing and growing and expanding the entire globe because God is doing a thing on this earth. And God's doing a thing on this series too because we're here and the grace of God has come down from heaven and he's touched us even in this place. I'm here for two reasons. Number one, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm here to introduce you to Jesus because it changes everything. Team Faith's been around for 21 years now. It was 21 years ago that a guy named Brian O'Rourke founded this ministry and Brian has a unique story. Brian was a uh, he didn't he didn't grow up knowing Jesus Christ. Brian knew, grew up knowing sex, drugs and rock and roll. He learned to play the guitar and uh, and sing and he loved he loved metal music, loved heavy metal music. And so after he graduated high school in Knoxville, Tennessee, he moved to New York City and he was the lead singer in a hair band, one of those 80s metal bands. And he was actually pretty good. If you go on teamfaith.com and you look at the video archives, there's a, story, there's a video there of Brian sharing his story. And there's, there's, in that video, there's an excerpt of him playing in a bar in New York City, and you see a big crowd of people, and he's way up there on stage. He's got long hair, and he's just banging it out. And he's, he's actually pretty good. He told me a story one time that they came down to Knoxville or to Nashville for a Battle of Bands playoff. And uh, when they get in, they're in this bar, and they're, they're playing one of their original songs that they had written themselves, and everybody in the crowd starts singing along. They're like, well, how do these people know our music? Well, in anticipation of the Battle of the Bands playoff, the local station had been playing their music. And so they were right on the edge of making it big and getting that record label and having a contract and, and making their dreams come true. And then as Brian explains it, Nirvana happened and Pearl Jam, and, and Nirvana, and, and the, the metal movement was out, and the grunge movement was in, and they were just cast aside, and there was no more heavy metal bands. It was the 90s. And so uh, his dreams came crashing down. He moved back home to Knoxville and couldn't find any gig, and so he became a DJ in a strip club. And he says he was just miserable. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll had just let him down and just left him empty and miserable. And uh, somebody that he didn't even like, had no respect for the guy at all, came up to him and said, Brian, have you tried Jesus? And Brian's like, I'm just miserable enough I could try Jesus. Gives his life to Christ. Shortly thereafter, he's sitting, he put in his two weeks notice at the strip club. He's sitting on his couch shortly thereafter. He's watching ESPN2 and he's watching Pro Jet Ski racing on TV. At the time, there's this kid that's winning all the races and the kid's pretty full of himself. And, uh, and every time he gets the microphone, he talks about himself and about how good he is. And Brian's sitting on his couch in Knoxville, Tennessee. He says, God, what if that kid were to become a Christian and he used that platform to glorify Jesus instead of himself? And the Holy Spirit said to him, well, go and lead him to the Lord. So Brian had no clue what he was doing, loaded up his pickup truck, goes down to Florida and starts going to these jet ski races trying to meet this kid. And in an effort to, uh, to, to identify with racers, he bought himself a jet ski and started racing jet skis. If they'd let him, he'd say a prayer before the race. If they'd let him, he'd have a little devotional where people could come to. He thought, man, I'd have a name for, for myself. And he came up with the name Team Faith because you got to have faith in something. Puts a sticker on his boat and Team Faith was born. It took him a whole year before he met that kid. It was a year after that, that out at Lake Havasu, that kid and Brian were baptized. Brian, baby Christian, didn't even know he was supposed to be baptized before he goes out and does ministry. Been doing ministry for two years and gets baptized. 
It was shortly after that that uh, he felt that, hey, we ought to expand this, this thing and, and take it to arena cross racing on two wheels. I met Brian in 2001 when I was playing church. I was, a youth, uh, I was helping with the youth at a church in Knoxville. Brian was coming through, spoke to the youth group, and uh, at this point in my life, I'd been pretty let down by religion, but, you know, God, I guess the definition of Christianity is you've got to be one of those weird people. So if you want God to do for you, you've got to do for God. And, God, I'll be weird for you. I'll wear a suit and a tie, even though I hate wearing a suit and tie. I'll wear a suit and a tie, and I'll go to church on Sunday, and I'll play the game. I'll go three times on Sunday, once on Wednesday, Thursday night Bible study, whatever. I'll do it all. I'll do for you. You do for me. That's not how it works. Being a weird Christian didn't get me anywhere. It just got me let down. I became disillusioned with God. I had met Brian identified with him, liked him, we were friends, but I just went off and I went running my own way. I started drinking, partying, chasing girls all over again. That all came crashing down for me in 2006 when my son was born, out of wedlock. I mean, I'd been dating his his mother, and uh, about the time that we should have broke up, found out she was pregnant, and uh, we tried to stick together for the sake of the baby, but when he was born, oh, my life was miserable. She didn't like me. I had a baby I couldn't care for. I had, a, I had a, a business that had gone bankrupt. I was bankrupt. I was an alcoholic. Everything in my life was falling apart. And I finally just hit my knees and I said, all right, God, I give up. I give up. Whatever it is that you want me to do, if there's anything you can do with my life, you can have it. Because there's nothing left. I don't know what you could do with my life. So I started hanging out with Team Faith in about 2006, 2007. 2008, I showed up at a GNCC race. Heard that there was a chapel service at the time it was held over at Ampro Yamaha. Started going to the chapel service at Ampro Yamaha. At the end of 2008, John Ayers, who had been doing it, says, I can't be here next year. I don't know what's going to happen. And that was the door that God opened for me to come in here. What is being a Christian? It's simply someone who says, Jesus is Lord. It's not a weirdo. It's not a political person. It's not a scientific or a superstitious person. It's just somebody who says, Jesus is Lord, and you can do with me what you want. My name's Chuck. I'm with Team Faith. This is what we preach all year long. God, thanks for the day. Just thanks for the sun coming out. Thank you that Jesus is Lord. I just pray that you'll move in our hearts, that our lights will shine bright to this nation that's around us, and that uh, you'll bring people to yourself, even through this crowd of people that's gathered under this tent today. Keep us safe as we go racing this weekend. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Have a great race. If you need a Bible, I'd love to give you one.